Welcome, everyone. Good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jajas, and I teach uh, Middle Eastern politics and international relations at the LSE. Plus, I am the uh, new director of a brand new Middle Eastern Center uh, at the LSE. We have really so many events, and I do hope that you join us for uh, some of the events in the next few weeks. In particular, sorry, Mary, I, I'm going to put a. We have a huge event on the 2nd of February uh, at, from 3 uh, in the afternoon till uh, 6. It's called the Changing a Geostrategic Landscape in the Middle East. And uh, basically some of the leading scholars in Britain and North America will take a look at how uh, uh, strategy, how powers have evolved and changed in the Middle East, in particular in relation to Iran, uh, Turkey, um, Israel and the Arab world. So please uh, keep us in mind on the 2nd of February from uh, 3 in the afternoon till 6 uh, in the afternoon. And the, the symposium will take place uh, at the Hong Kong Theater, uh, which is located in the Clement House, uh, the IR building, International Relations Building. Anyway, uh, welcome to tonight's events. Uh, and tonight's event is America's Wars uh, in the Muslim World. I thought that Barack Obama has pledged to end America's wars in the Muslim world, uh, Nia. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we really have a very impressive panel tonight. And I want to basically uh, start by introducing our uh, guest of honor, uh, that is Nia Rosen. Uh, welcome to LSC, Nia. Uh, Nia is one of the few Western writers and scholars who really basically view the Middle East and the Muslim world from the inside out as opposed from the outside in. And this is not just a rhetorical statement about the inside uh, out versus the inside in. Uh, for example, in the last eight years, Nair has lived for the last eight years in Iraq, basically reporting on developments and the war that has been raging in Iraq since 2003. He lived in Lebanon for almost three years. He reported uh, from Afghanistan, from Palestine, from multiple theaters, from Israel and other places as well. He's really different from your typical Western correspondent, who basically the lazy correspondent who speculates and pontificates on the region from the outside uh, in. And his first book on Iraq uh, uh, was called The Triumph of the Martyrs. And the book itself dealt with basically the American occupation of Iraq and the impact of the American occupation uh, of Iraq on the social structure of Iraq and the changing dynamics of Iraqi society. Today he's here to talk about his new book, and that is uh, Aftermath, basically following the uh, bloodshed of America's wars uh, in the Muslim world. And this book basically really takes the story up to date. Uh, the book itself explores questions of civil war, of occupation, sectarianism, resistance, not just in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Lebanon, and its comparative perspective is really very, very critical for us. And I hope that you will have many questions for Nia, both about Iraq and Lebanon, because he has lived for quite many years there, and he just came uh, uh, four days ago, right? He was in Iraq, uh, so uh, he will give us a fresh 
outlook into really what's been happening in Iraq, because as you well know, Iraq is, is a highly precarious and volatile society. Even though it does not really now, it's not on the front pages of our major newspapers, I would argue Iraq is as dangerous and, as, as Afghanistan, and I hope that uh, Nia uh, disagrees with me uh, when he talks about Iraq. But questions on both Lebanon and Iraq would be very appropriate for Nia. Uh, again, I, I, I can't do justice for uh, Nia. I mean, he has been very prolific. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Time Magazine, on and on and on. So it's, it's, uh, and he is currently a fellow at the New York University Center on, on Law and Security. You're still a fellow there. Uh, so welcome here to LSE, and really we look forward to your feedback and insights tonight. Our other speaker is uh, Dr. Alia Brahimi. Uh, she is a research fellow at uh, Global Governance. We have a Global Governance here, as you all know, at uh, LSE. And again, it's, it's one of the most, it is, this is really a center that has made a difference in basically enriching intellectual life uh, at uh, LSE. And Dr. Brahimi basically manages the North African project uh, at Global Governance as well as Dr. Professor Mary Caldor's project on human security. And uh, Dr. Brahimi has a new book called uh, uh, Just War in the War on Terror. Just War in the War on Terror, which explores the moral justifications used and abused in the war on terror itself. I must confess, I have not read the book, so it's on my reading list, so forgive me, uh, uh, Dr. Alia. But I think if I, if I may summarize uh, and, and simplify, uh, Alia is very much interested in normative theory, in particular the relationship between Islam and international relations and Islam in the political process uh, itself. And uh, the, both their books will be, they'll sign their books after the, um, after the, the, the end of the, the evening uh, lecture. Uh, in addition to our two uh, uh, prominent speakers, we have, of course, Professor Caldor, Mary Caldor, the one and only, uh, uh, and I mean it, uh, because uh, Mary does not really need any introduction here. Uh, I don't need to remind you that she has coined the term human security, and she has really, it's one of our giants here uh, at LSC. I, I mean it, uh, Mary. I was one of her students long before I came to LSC. And she has a new book as well. Her book is called The Ultimate Weapon is No Weapon, Human Security and the New Rules of War and Peace. And the book was published uh, by Public Affairs in New York, again, a leading uh, publishing uh, house. Uh, Dr. Brahimi's book was published by Oxford University Press 2010. And uh, Nier's book, what was the publisher in here? All right. Uh, what was the publisher? Oh, uh, Nation, Nation Book. Again, in New York, uh, the format is very straightforward. Each speaker will have 15 minutes, and Dr. Caldor will basically uh, have 10 minutes to respond. As you well, I don't know if you know, I have written extensively on America's wars uh, in the Muslim world over the years, truly quite uh, several books, but I'm delighted to be part of the audience tonight. So I'm going to enjoy myself and listen. Please join me in welcoming our uh, prominent speakers tonight. Thank you. Another one, please. Okay. Please. Yeah. Just uh, tell me when to stop talking. Uh, you have 15 minutes. You know. I mean, it's uh, you're welcome to take 20 minutes. <laughs> 
Good evening. I want to try to connect uh, my work with Dr. Alia's work. Um, she's sort of on the uh, theoretical side of uh, war, both from Western and uh, sort of Al-Qaeda point of view, and I, I look more, I guess, at the practical consequences of that and how both sides implemented uh, their war. I'll start uh, with uh, the, the Americans um, and the, the consequences of the American wars, which is mostly what I look at in my book, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as how uh, the occupation of, of Iraq, um, there is ramifications in uh, Jordan, Syria, uh, Lebanon in particular, um, all the way to Afghanistan. Um, an occupation is a systematic imposition of violence on an entire population. We think of Abu Ghraib, with, with, um, at least in America, um, a, a few sort of scandals um, as if they were exceptions, but for Iraqis, uh, for the last eight years, certainly uh, w while the occupation was at its most intense, every day was in Abu Ghraib. It's not just uh, for the people who were prisoners in jail who were, were forced to be naked and so sodomized or, or tortured, um, but it's the entire population. Um, you're constantly surrounded by white guys who don't speak your language with guns. There are guns pointed at you all the time. Um, as somebody who looks more or less local, I, I felt that as well. Whether security contractors, um, American soldiers, obviously, uh, later on Iraqi security forces, everywhere you go, there is a vehicle with a 50 caliber machine gun pointed at you, um, an AK-47 or an M-16 pointed at you. You're constantly aware that some, you don't have power over your life. Uh, maybe you didn't under Saddam, likewise you don't. Today, there are new forces who have power over you. Uh, even if they're the best-intentioned occupiers, they could be Girl Scouts from Denmark, their mere presence there um, destroys your life in some way. In Afghanistan, for example, about a year ago I was in Helmand and uh, the Americans and, and Brits were trying to fix, the Taliban had blown up uh, the road, the Americans were trying to fix it. I ended up destroying an irrigation canal which supplied water to 30 families in a village um, who now had no water to sustain themselves and nobody had any idea who was going to fix it. Uh, it wasn't fixed as far as I know. Uh, and this is just happening on a daily basis in thousands and thousands of, of, of cases. Little things like that. Uh, your vehicles are too big to fit to the road. They're banging and uh, destroying somebody's taxi. Now you've destroyed his livelihood. Not to mention the much more aggressive operations where people are being killed and your intelligence is terrible. You don't speak the local language. Um, you're relying on interlocutors who have their own interests uh, which might not be necessarily to support you, but to support themselves. Maybe they, they don't like their neighbors, um, or they just want access to resources of some kind. They're going to blame some guy with nothing to do with Al-Qaeda or the Mahdi army. Um, but you're going to go in there, drag him away. Uh, you, you may just confuse the names because all these Arabs and Muslims have these weird-sounding names that are hard to write down in English. And it's who's, who's uh, your, the guy's father and his father and his father, and it gets confusing. Um, so you're going to raid one house, drag the father out. The kids are screaming, Daddy, Daddy. Uh, the father's taken away. Maybe he goes through the system and comes out after six months. While well, he's been beaten and brutalized, there's nobody to support the mother. Uh, the, the kids are urinating in bed because their father's been taken away. They've watched him get beaten up in front of them. And this is happening in thousands and thousands of cases because at least 50,000 men went through the American detention system in Iraq. Uh, thousands and thousands of orphans. These operations are very, as Americans like to say, kinetic. Um, countless 
Iraqi civilians were killed by accident. I mean, not that anybody deserves to be killed by the Americans, because obviously who are they in Iraq or Afghanistan to be uh, the judge, jury, and executioner? But even if the guy deserved it, some al-Qaeda guy, they have no way of knowing that. And certainly most of the 50,000 or so prisoners who were through the American system uh, were never charged with anything. So we have the, the most brutal aspect of the occupations just we're constantly killing civilians by accident at checkpoints. I mean, the American soldiers don't want to get killed. Some strange guy coming up to them might be a suicide bomber, might not be. If you were in that position, you'd kill him too to make sure you don't want, you don't want to risk your life. This is happening every day. Um, we also created a civil war in Iraq. Uh, the civil war in Iraq began in 2003. We removed the state and put nothing in its place. And as soon as the Americans won the war, it was a very easy war to win. The Iraqi military, for the most part, chose not to fight. Militias took over because there was a vacuum. And if you removed the state in London or any other city um, and, did, and removed the security forces, you'd very soon find local self-defense militias arising. They'd be based on neighborhood or uh, ethnic identity or religion. Um, that's how people are. In, in New York, you'd have Jewish gangs fighting Puerto Rican gangs. Um, you'd have some equivalent over here. Um, people would naturally embrace their own group and, and turn to them for protection, which is what happened in Iraq, of course, Sunni militias, Shia militias, tribal militias um, coming to existence because there was chaos and anarchy. And those militias remain very much in control of Iraq today, but now they're wearing maybe the suits of politicians or uniforms of security forces. Um, torture today is routine, systematic uh, I mean, we talk about instilling rule of law in Iraq or Afghanistan, but Iraqis and Afghans watch what we're doing, arresting and killing with impunity, uh, and we're hardly an example. And they'll, give that, they'll say that when you accuse them of torture. You guys do it too. Uh, in Afghanistan, we've empowered warlords. Um, we've made the Taliban much more extreme. These kill and capture operations that we hear about today, which may be more effective in killing Taliban leaders, you think that was a good thing from an American point of view, at least, if not from a Taliban point of view. Um, but all they're doing, in many cases, is removing Taliban leaders who are more, tie, more tied to the communities, more traditional, have a, a better relationship with Mullah Omar and the, uh, the Taliban leadership, as a result of being replaced with younger guys, more radical guys, uh, less tied to the community. They're alienating traditional elders and, and the, the community. That, and if we ever are able to negotiate with Mullah Omar, these newer guys who've replaced the people we've killed will be much more extreme and m sort of more committed to the Al-Qaeda ideology and global jihadism than the, the normal Taliban, the old Taliban, who are much more Afghan-led, Afghan-oriented, and don't really care about the rest of the world uh, in, in, their, uh, in their jihad. Um, these conflicts are being justified through racism of one kind or another, that Iraqis and Afghans are savages, are tribal. Um, Islam is the only way to understand them. Uh, ten, almost 10 years into this, and whenever I, I, I meet with American military officials, soldiers, officers, they're still reading the same literature. It's very Orientalist literature, which tries to explain Afghans and Arabs and all Muslims through sort of one secret code. If we can just unlock that code, we'll understand them. Whether it's Pushtun Wali in, in, in Afghanistan, um, and if we just understand Pushtun Wali, this secret Pushtun code, we can program Pushtuns to act the way we want them to act. Or if we just unlock the secrets of Islam, we can understand the way Muslims work, because obviously Islam is the, is the key to understanding Muslims. Um, and it's still very much the, the main way in which the American military, American government, approach people in the Middle East. Um, and through counterinsurgency, the, the, the new... Uh, 
secret American way of war, which General Petraeus, the, the brilliant physically fit general, unlocked and saved us in Iraq and now can save us in Afghanistan. It's supposed to be very population-centric, protect the people. In reality, in Iraq, um, during the surge phase, when counterinsurgency was supposed to be implemented, three times as many civilians were killed by the Americans as before the surge. It's very violent, increased airstrikes. In Iraq, there was increased artillery as well. The kill and capture operations, anybody on the ground can tell you, may kill and capture some of the people the Americans want to kill and capture, but also um, a whole lot of innocent civilians along the way. Um, more specifically, though, to, to move away from the, the, the consequences of war, um, my book, I, I try to see what, what really happened during the surge. So you can't, people have forgotten about Iraq uh, because we won the war in Iraq and it's time to move on. The media have moved on. The uh, U.S. government has moved on. Everybody is now focusing on Afghanistan. But I argue that you can't understand what's happening in Afghanistan without understanding what happened in Iraq because for the American military and government, they're very much basing their approach to Afghanistan on the certain myths about Iraq. Uh, the, obviously, the, the, the uh, primary one being that Iraq was a success. Things weren't going that well. There was a muddled occupation, some incompetence. And then in 2006, the Samara Shrine was attacked, was blown up. And suddenly a civil war started, and this genius General Petraeus came in and saved the day, and now he's going to save us in Afghanistan because he has a PhD, and he can do 100 push-ups, and he's smarter and better than us. Um, and there's a real sort of uh, hagiography and, and uh, hero worship, first of McChrystal, now of Petraeus again, um, but somehow because they have PhDs and they're physically fit, um, and they've, they've realized that... Um, the way to win a war, this genius idea, is not to kill innocent people, but to get them to like you. Like it's some deep uh, secret that they've unlocked. The civil war in Iraq began in 2003, as I said. Militias were killing each other from the beginning. Murder rates jumped from about one a month in Baghdad to 25 a month in Baghdad right, right away. And uh, as I said, these militias were formed on sectarian lines, ethnic lines. Scores were being settled. The Americans came in there with an approach. Basically, Sunnis are bad, Shias are good. The Ba'ath Party, they thought, was a Sunni Nazi party. That Saddam models himself on the Nazi party. And the Ba'ath Party was a Sunni party. And we were going to save the Shia Jews from the Sunni Nazis. And we imposed this sectarian structure on Iraq. So for Iraqis, the only way to have access to power and resources very quickly became um, through, uh, through their sect. Even if before, maybe they hadn't thought of themselves primarily as Sunni or Shia or Kurd. We created a puppet governing council, uh, which was based on quotas, so many Sunnis, so many Shias, so many Kurds. Even the Communist Party member of that governing council was chosen, not because he was a leftist or secular, but because he was Shia. And the Iraqis were warning from the beginning, the Americans are trying to create a civil war. And if you read history backwards, looking at it, it looks like we took every single step possible to create a civil war. In reality, we were never that smart. It was just uh, incompetence and arrogance. Um, although we really did take every single step possible. Um, the American approach in, in Sunni areas, because they thought Sunnis were the bad guys and Saddam loyalists, was much more aggressive and created a self-fulfilling prophecy of Sunnis feeling like they were being targeted and, and obviously responding with the increased uh, hostility to the Americans. And Fallujah is a classic example of that. In Fallujah, Fallujah was a totally insignificant town in Iraq, um, not wealthy, the only reason you never heard of it before the war was if you're going to Lake Habania is a, a popular picnic area in the Anbar province, and you'd stop in Fallujah to get some kebab on the way to Lake Habania. There was nothing else about Fallujah that 
predestined it to be this important resistance town. For the first weeks of the war, the Americans weren't even in Fallujah, and it was very peaceful, no shots were fired. Locals took over their own affairs. The Americans came in there, took over a school in the center of town. There was a demonstration. The Americans claim a shot was fired. They fired into the crowd and I think killed about 17 people. And it began to be a much more aggressive presence. Um, and it was in Fallujah that the civil war became much more intense because the Americans destroyed Fallujah in late 2004. And you had a few hundred thousand Fallujans pouring in to, to western Baghdad, beginning to displace Shias in west Baghdad. Those Shias went to east Baghdad, displaced Sunnis over there. And the population exchange began well before 2006. And uh, um, it intensified when the Shia, there were, you had January 30, 2005 elections, um, in which Shias dominated the government. Sunnis basically boycotted the state. And the, the government uh, began a very aggressive counterinsurgency um, targeting Sunni uh, civilians. It took about a year before you could see that Shias had won the civil war. But by late 2006, I was meeting Sunni resistance leaders in Baghdad, in Syria, and Jordan, and they were all telling me we lost, we miscalculated when we uh, boycotted the state in 2003 and handed over Iraq to the Iranians, because in their mind all Shias are Persians and Iranians and Safavids. Um, and it was not the American surge which reduced violence in Iraq. It was this very brutal, aggressive Shia counterinsurgency. The Shias controlled the state. It's wrong to say the Shias, but sectarian parties which were, um, which were Shia ended up in control of the state of the security forces. And it, in a sense, it was Black and Decker which won the Civil War because the hallmark, the signature of Shia militias was a power drill. You'd find Sunni corpses with power drill marks in their body. So it's a very aggressive counterinsurgency which targeted the Sunni uh, population. Sunni Arabs were only 20% of the population. So they soon realized that they were staring at, at the brink of extermination which led to the formation of the Awakening Councils, Sunni militiamen who switched sides. Um, basically, we had a Sunni ceasefire. Um, Baghdad was very much in the hands of Shia militias who responded to the American surge by deciding they were going to lie low, the Mahdi army. Lie low and wait the American surge out. Um, but both militias miscalculated, and the Iraqi state became much stronger and crushed first the Awakening militias, arresting and killing many of them, later on declaring war on the Shia militias. And right now, to conclude... Uh, the Iraq that we see is actually quite stable, I argue, in the sense of uh, no, this, the new order can't be overthrown. Life in Iraq is terrible for most Iraqis. Extremely violent, more violent than Afghanistan. Um, very much, so my optimistic take is that Iraq may be like Mexico or Pakistan, in that you're going to have a very strong regime, um, very strong security forces, the trappings of representation and democracy, very brutal. Torture is routine and systematic. If you get arrested, you're going to get sodomized with a glass bottle. You're going to get electrocuted. They'll wrap a wet blanket around your body and electrocute you. But they're not going to do it because you're Sunni or Shia. They're going to do it because that's how you get a confession. You take the confession to court. The, ju the judge finds you guilty. If you pay a sufficient bribe, you're going to get released, whether you're innocent or guilty. Everything has been sort of institutionalized. Um, and th but there's no need for militias anymore because that security vacuum which led to the creation of militias no longer exists. The Iraqi security forces have now filled that vacuum, and they're no longer perceived as death squads targeting civilians at random. They're now just very brutal security forces targeting people who are probably involved in something. Um, or they're arresting you just for money. They'll arrest you on a pretext and demand $10,000 for your release. Um, but you no longer have any movements which are contesting the system. The Sudrists, the Mahdi army, very much a part of the system now. Uh, nobody's ideologically opposed to the system. They all just want a piece of the pie. Um, 
political parties that were tied to resistance groups likewise just want a, a piece of the spoils. So the Iraq we have today is quite stable, very authoritarian, very brutal, very corrupt, no services for the population, um, terrible water, no electricity, uh, a growing disparity between a nouveau riche class and the majority of the people who are very poor, uh, but nothing they can do about it, and they're so traumatized by the civil war that people are just desperate to get enough fuel to fuel, uh, to, for their generators, enough oil so they can cook at home. Um, so and this is the optimistic take uh, on, on Iraq. There are people who argue that things can get much worse, the civil war can resume. I argue that it can't uh, because the, the people who fear a civil war can resume are usually people who think that the Americans were the ones that ended the civil war. And therefore, if the Americans leave, then it, it'll start again. But the Americans haven't really been very powerful in Iraq since 2009. And as I said, it was the Shia victory and the seizure of the state which led to the end of the civil war and the depopulation of much of Baghdad from its Sunnis. Um, the Maliki regime is quite stable and looking more and more like Saddam's regime, uh, but there's a, a certain lip service paid to democracy, which actually is, is probably more than anywhere else in the region. Uh, in some ways, Iraq is the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, you do have a parliament with the potential to be very active. Um, I, I think, to conclude, the only potential for further instability in Iraq is, uh, would be the result of what we're seeing elsewhere in the region, uh, Tunisia, Egypt, Jordan. You have a huge problems of social injustice in Iraq. The vast majority of the population is still very poor. The same problems which existed under Saddam uh, exist today. Millions of people living in slums, basically living in, in, in shit. Um, when you visit places in Iraq, there are right now half a million Iraqis who are squatters, are homeless living on huge piles of sewage. When you visit them, you can't breathe. Uh, you're embarrassed to put something around your face, but uh, there's flies all over the place, uh, little kids barefoot playing in sewage and garbage. Uh, and this is a phenomenon which you didn't really see in Iraq but before the war, but it's a result of the displacement. People who have nowhere to live are living on public property on sewage. Hundreds of thousands of people living on sewage. Um, huge problem of poverty and, and social injustice, but no movement right now which is sort of revolutionary, um, um, which these people can use to somehow undermine the system. Uh, the Sudras, as I said, are kind of a spent force, the most popular force in the country uh, as a grassroots movement, but not a revolutionary one anymore. They're just happy to be part of the establishment and get a piece of the, of the uh, patronage network like, like everybody else in Iraq. That's 100 miles an hour. Thanks, Nir. Um, I'm uh, sorry that I'm going to have to uh, lower the tone a little bit and look at the more, some of the more conceptual or even metaphysical aspects of the war on terror and the arguments that were driving some of the violence that uh, Nir describes. There is no moral equivalent for this attack. This was the pronouncement of Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York, after 9-11. <laughs> From its inception, the war on terror was described by its protagonists in distinctly moral terms. Indeed, the Bush administration observed, after the attacks, that it, that it had been struck by the evil forces of terror. Bin Laden, too, explained that the young hijackers represented the conscience of the Ummah, which sees that it's imperative to take revenge against evildoers and transgressors and criminals and terrorists. So moral ideas were continually used to paint and render the battlefield. 
And specifically, the vocabulary of a just war was invoked by both sides. Bush stated, if war is forced upon us, we will fight in a just cause and by just means, sparing in every way we can the innocent. And bin Laden too explained that we are following our prophet's mission. This is a defensive jihad to protect our land and people. He who commences hostilities is the unjust one. So the just war and jihad traditions, centuries old, act as a framework structuring debate about war with the objective of limiting war to the absolutely necessary. And both furnish a series of criteria that have to be met for wars to be legitimate. That the cause is just, that the war is prosecuted under right authority, that violence is a last resort, that non-combatants are never to be deliberately targeted. The suggestion that bin Laden and his cohorts are capable of moral argument undermines the dramatization of the war on terror as a binary struggle between civilization and barbarism. In opposition to commonplace portrayals of bin Laden as a nihilistic holy warrior, I argue that his case for war is certainly more subtle. Though ultimately, bin Laden may be a religious fanatic who believes in aggressive warfare against unbelief, he speaks to his larger audience using reasonable and reasoned moral arguments, which depict his jihad as just, limited, and necessary. If you have a situation where both sides are claiming that they're fighting a just war by the standards of their own civilizations, on the face of it, you have a situation which looks a little bit like a clash between civilizations. But I argue that through a series of sleights of hands and logic, Bush and bin Laden, in a way, reinvent their respective just war traditions to make their wars fit into them. I'll give you just a couple of examples here. At the dawn of the 21st century, it's pretty much taken for granted in uh, Western just war theory and in international law that uh, a just war is self-defense against aggression leaving to one side the issue of uh, humanitarian intervention under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, basically you're supposed to be resisting aggression. But because Iraq hadn't attacked the US, the Bush administration had to qualify the notion of aggression in three ways. Firstly, there was the revival of the notion of war as punishing evil. And uh, just to be uh, very brief about it, um, since uh, Francisco de Vittoria in the 17th century and the neo-scholastics afterwards argued heavily against including this notion of evil in, in, as a just cause for war. So their aims were to, to counter holy war thinking and to stamp out the crusade. And what they argued was that war was just only if it was waged to correct some perfectly definite wrong. So something that a law court can adjudicate about, something that's subjective. And that's evolved into the notion of resisting aggression, which fences off subjective values like evil. So in a sense, Bush was reverting centuries back to the view of war as an instrument of God's justice. And the second qualification on aggression was the issue of preemptive war, where Bush essentially tries to package a preventive war like a legitimate preemptive war. In a preemptive war, the idea is that you're not just waiting, you're not just sitting and waiting for an attack that you're certain is coming that the attack is both imminent and certain, and that you still retain your moral status as the victim. 
A preventive war, by contrast, is a situation where the threat is putative and long-term, and preventive war is considered by the just war tradition significantly more morally dubious. So what distinguishes the two, legitimate preemption and prevention, is the key concept of imminence. But Bush's national security strategy explicitly stated that it was going to adapt the concept of imminence to meet the new post-9-11 world. So in adapting the concept of imminence, he tries to collapse the distinction between these two types of war that have been distinguished for centuries. And I give a detailed account of that in the book. But the third qualification on aggression is actually the Bush administration's move away from the focus on aggression itself. We all know that there were three strands to the Bush administration's case for war, the disarming WMD, the link with al-Qaeda, and this, uh, the vicious regime that, had to, that was um, um, the, the brutal nature of the Ba'athist regime. But in the absence of proof of the first two, Toppling a vicious regime has become increasingly the dominant, if not the only, justification for the war in Iraq. By his final speech as president, Bush actually summarized the venture in Iraq as the transformation from a brutal d dictatorship to an Arab democracy. This remains uncomfortable for the British, who had originally treated regime change in Iraq as an unintended but positive outcome of disarming Iraq of WMD. But it's also problematic for the Bush administration because many people don't accept that democracy, freedom, or God's gift of, gift of liberty is as fundamental or universalizable a goal as other just war values like resisting aggression or the protection of innocence. Or even some would maintain that democracy itself may not be a universal right. The operative belief by the Bush administration was well expressed by Wolfowitz when he stated that the values we call Western are indeed universal. Interestingly, figures such as Mahathir would argue that Western values are merely Western, Islamic values are universal. In any case, the ideals of liberty and freedom as realized by liberal democracies aren't as clearly basic as the just war values which have shaped the norm of humanitarian intervention. And the freedom to which Bush so often appealed can conceivably be realized in a number of varying ways. Bin Laden himself offered such an argument, declaring that Al-Qaeda fights because we are free men who cannot acquiesce in injustice. In short, the legitimacy of Bush's value-laden agenda was merely assumed. He didn't offer a full account of why freedom in the form of democratization might be as obvious a just cause for war as protecting the inalienable right to life threatened by aggressive war or genocide. In parallel, Al-Qaeda too was operating an expansive understanding of just cause, where the just cause is broadened and the boundaries are widened. There's a robust tradition in Islam of, of limiting just war to defense against aggression. And by the end of the 19th century, there's a consensus that this became uh, dominant. Referring to his men as freedom fighters, Bin Laden insists time and time again that his is a defensive jihad against the American enemy. This, it's this tradition of defensive jihad that Bin Laden engages with. However, Given that America hadn't launched any invasion of bin Laden's country before 9-11, be it Saudi Arabia, Sudan, or Afghanistan, this notion of defensive war was problematic. As a result, bin Laden had to qualify aggression in two critical ways. Firstly, 
He employed a religious conception of the territorial entity that was being attacked. It was the entire Islamic ummah. And secondly, he resorted to religious idioms when defining America's aggressive actions. So it was symbolic attacks on the sanctity of Islam and how Islam's holy sites are defiled by American troops roaming Saudi Arabia. Prior to the war in Iraq, bin Laden had little to work with in suggesting that the US had launched an unprovoked assault. By throwing together a host of international injustices framed in Islamic terms, Bin Laden avoided having to pin down a single act of aggression and could instead claim that there was an overall offensive campaign against Islam. Quote, Bush has declared in his words, in his own words, crusade attack. The odd thing about this is that he's taken the words right out of my mouth. So Bin Laden's is an alleged war of self-defense, but it's fundamentally dependent upon religiously informed revisions of the concept of aggression and ultimately on an expansive understanding of what self-defense is. And throughout the book, I attempt to show how contemporary Muslims and the heirs of the Western tradition also appealed to just war concepts in parallel to oppose Bush and Bin Laden's cases for war. I won't go in, into that here, but my point is that Bush and Bin Laden's arguments caused worldwide uproar from their peers, in a sense. So rather than a clash between civilizations, my humble analysis would describe the war on terror as a clash within civilizations. And it, in addition to important uh, moral and legal concepts, it occurs to me that Al-Qaeda reinvent tradition in other ways. One of the most interesting to me concerns the cult of martyrdom. It's intriguing that the cult of martyrdom upon which Al-Qaeda draws and to which it, it contributes engages with aspects of Islam which are associated with the very sects that Al-Qaeda denounces. So Naveed Kamani pointed out in the TLS in 2002 that the cult of martyrdom possesses a distinctively a Shia quality. It only developed in opposition to the Islamic majority and many of its elements are alien to the nature of Sunni Islam. The idea of redemption, the need for repentance, the idea of an imitation of suffering. As such, Al-Qaeda's bombers are borrowing from a past which isn't even their own. But there are also clearly Sufi elements at work, I would say. Um, Sufism combines the teachings of the Quran with mystical and esoteric elements, and it's often demonized by Sunni extremists as a heretical cult which venerates the dead. Yet the hijacker's spiritual manual... This is the manual that was found in the luggage of one of the 9-11 hijackers, which prescribed um, actions and prayers for every stage of the attack leading up to the hijackings, down to what they eat and how they slept. So in the spiritual manual, it prescribes an almost cultic recitation of prayer, which is aimed at inducing a trance-like mental state, which is very Sufi. And also the martyrdom narratives that were famously related by Al-Qaeda's founder, Abdullah Azam, where he describes the bodies of martyrs as sweet-scented, as protected from de decay, radiating light. These are hugely similar to the types of Sufi stories uh, about saints and martyrs. So again, they borrow from a past which isn't even their own. In both the West and in Islam, the consequences or outcomes of a war are very important in forming moral judgments about its overall value. And this is usually expressed as the notion of having a reasonable hope of success. Is what you're setting out to do achievable, or in Rumsfeld speak, doable? 
This becomes a moral consideration, avoiding useless and shameful bloodshed, as Calvin put it. As Islamic law developed, both classical Sunni and also Shia jurists decided that the maximum number of enemies a Muslim was obliged to stand his own ground was double his own troops. He couldn't risk a defeat for Allah's cause, and there was no shame in going home. Now, it's worth underscoring the importance of this consequentialist criterion to the unraveling of the war on terror, this idea that it's the consequences of what you do that are morally important. Grave doubt has been cast on the Bush administration's project to install liberal democracies in the Middle East by the way of warfare. Given the horrific cycles of violence which unfolded after the invasion of Iraq, illustrated authoritatively by Nir, and the seeming inability of coalition forces to control the situation, we might tentatively conclude that Bush's forward strategy of freedom has been largely discredited. Bush was repeatedly warned of this scenario before the invasion. This isn't just a matter of hindsight, foremost among whom was was Margaret Hassan, the the, uh, care worker who was killed eventually in Iraq. But in parallel, in light of the predominantly Muslim death toll from Al-Qaeda-related bombings, a series of even radical Muslims have condemned Al-Qaeda's jihad for its unrealistic goals, its adverse consequences, and its ultimate wastefulness. This backlash can be interpreted, at least in part, as a repudiation of entrepreneurial, self-styled jihad. Who can forget bin Laden's mentor, live on television, asking him, brother, what have all these years of bloodshed actually achieved? Brother, have your means become the ends themselves? So I think we've seen a reassertion of the value of pragmatics and of tangible outcomes There's a question, what is the situation going to look like? I think that's going to work to rein in ideological warfare in the future. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'll skip over the bit about al-Qaeda's future. Um, (laughs) But I'll conclude by saying that um, a prominent, uh, George Vigel, a prominent commentator on religious issues in the U.S., wrote a book called uh, A Call to Action Against Jihadism. And he stated that moral reason doesn't have much to do with jihadism, which is built on a foundation of irrationality. But I'd suggest that an effective call to action against jihadism can't be based upon such a premise. Al-Qaeda both defines and empowers itself with moral reasoning. Indeed, to to deny that bin Laden possesses a moral project would be to deny ourselves the most powerful weapon in the campaign against Al-Qaeda, It's precisely because bin Laden invokes the Islamic jihad tradition and simultaneously pushes its moral boundaries that the main source of vulnerability for al-Qaeda is created. Firstly, because many of his arguments are gravely flawed and have increasingly been pointed out as such by even radical Muslims. And secondly, because in the end, and particularly with the slaughter of Muslim civilians, bin Laden fails to live up to his own moral standards, thus exposing his agenda and worldview as ultimately bankrupt. And so it's on account of the profoundly moral foundations and pretensions of jihadism that it will decline and disappear as a force in international relations. Well, these are two wonderful books, so congratulations to both.
near and Alia. Um, I haven't managed to read them completely for two reasons. Nears is too long, <laughs> and Alia's is the sort of book that you have to read really carefully. <laughs> so I'm planning to read them both properly, but I have sort of looked at them. And I think what's really interesting is how complementary they both are. Um, and I really want to talk, I think, about that complementarity. Because although one comes from a very uh, wonderful real-life situation, I mean, Nir is following Iraq and Afghanistan on the ground as an Iraqi and as an Afghan, and um, Alia is really focusing on the texts. In a way, they come to the same sort of conclusion, which is that they neither of them take sides, although Nir sometimes likes to pretend he does. Um, and they, in fact, I mean, his book starts very movingly with a family burying the victims of Saddam's regime. And he makes the point, the fact that Saddam's regime was so horrible no longer doesn't justify the U.S. war. Um, but, and, but so what they both do is they don't take sides, but that doesn't mean they're not taking positions. They're taking very clear positions, actually, against war. And if, you, if I were to try to say what's common about them, they're really about the persistence of the framework of war in a globalized world and the hugely damaging effect that has on a globalized world. So let me just say really three points about all that. Um, one is that if we try to think about what we mean by globalization, I often turn it on its head and think, actually, we, we think we mean by globalization interconnectedness, increased communication. But actually, what globalization is about is, I think, the end of the classic framework of war. <laughs> that we suddenly started to talk about it at the end of the Cold War because the Cold War no longer structured our world. And the fascinating thing about the Cold War was that it ended peacefully and not in a war. And I think, actually, if you like, the Second World War was so terrible. This was the moment when we founded the United Nations and when we made war illegal. But we hadn't, didn't really become aware of it until the Cold War was over. The Cold War, in a way, kept alive the idea of war. And we've only become aware of it in the last two decades. Nevertheless, war thinking remains persistent in the minds of people like President Bush and Osama bin Laden. And I'd, I'd like to say a couple of things relating to this and relating to the book, one on just war theory and one on some of the things that Nia says. I'm absolutely fascinated by just war theory, which actually I see as much about legitimizing war as it is about minimizing the effects of war. And I'm also fascinated by what I see as a historic interchange between Islamic thinking on war and Western thinking about war. I mean, in a sense, if you look at the ideas about war in the era of classical Islam, they did go back 
to the ancient Greeks. And actually, I'm quite convinced that that classical Islamic thought had a huge impact on Enlightenment thinking. Uh, indeed, this distinction between holy war and just war was made from the beginning in Islamic thought since the prophet was the only person who had a straight line to God. There was no such thing as a holy war. A jihad is a just war, whereas in the Christian tradition, there was always this distinction between a holy war, which was authorized by the Pope, and a just war, which was authorized by secular rulers who had to operate within uh, the rules of the church. And it was getting rid of holy war, which was the great thing that Vittorio and Grotius did. Uh, but what's fascinating is looking at the similarities. Actually, I mean, as, as Alia says in her book, Islamic just war theory, I think, goes much further than the Western just war theory. But one of the things that's common to both is that we have, the Enlightenment made this distinction between civil society and war. And civil society was, if you like, the inside, based on the rule of law and war was the outside. And of course, Islam has the same distinction, the distinction between the realm of Islam, or peace, and the realm of war. Um, and the law of war, just war, applies to this external realm. And I think the key point about globalization is that it's dissolving that distinction. The key point about globalization is that once you remove the idea of war, at least in the popular perception, then we do start to see ourselves as members of a human community. <laughs> and that clear distinction between civil war and a civil society and war is, is rapidly dissolving so that just war theory becomes essentially an anachronism. That's my view. <laughs> and it's this, and, and if you like, War on terror and jihad were the imposition of this anachronism in this globalized world. So now let me lastly just say something about Nier's book, because I, I'm, I think, interestingly enough, actually, the effect of Iraq and Afghanistan has, has been not only to make us think about all this, but actually that thinking is going on inside the American military who've had to experience all this and know many of them, many ordinary soldiers, junior officers know that what they've been doing has been a terrible mistake. It's been an incredible learning experience for them. And I, I love the way um, Nia talks about the coindonistas and I agree with him. But I think coin is a very, coin is the counterinsurgency doctrine of General Petraeus, but I think it's a very contradictory doctrine. Actually, it wasn't General Petraeus's brilliant ideas. It sort of bubbled up from junior officers with experience on the ground. And it's terribly contradictory because at the heart of the coin idea is this idea of population security is this idea that the key thing is to protect people. But at the same time, it's got in it the war idea of defeating enemies. And that's what you see if you look at the surge in Iraq. I mean, I, I wouldn't condemn it all. I mean, I quite agree there were terrible continuing airstrikes. There were 
um, thousands of people who were detained in horrible ways. But actually, by putting uh, joint security stations into Iraq, emphasizing living amongst the people, which actually led to an increase in risk to American soldiers, what the U.S. did was an enabling role. I, I quite agree with you that's not why the violence reduced. The violence reduced largely because of the awakening and because of the things that you say about the Shiite cease, the, the, the Sadrist ceasefire, and also because of an Iraqi public backlash against violence. But in fact, that sort of population security approach did, did facilitate that. The Americans were able to broker lots and lots of local agreements. So I would say, but at the same time, they were doing all these other horrible things. And, and you see that contradiction even more now in Afghanistan. I mean, the McChrystal strategy emphasized even more than the Petraeus strategy. It even uses the term human security in it. It's about stabilization. It's about population security. And yet what we're seeing now are these hideous uh, increased defensive operations against the Taliban because of the timeline, increased drone attacks, which are quite contradictory. And I think that expresses a sort of great contradiction at the heart of the United States, actually. I mean, not only within the military is this conflict being fought out, but also among politicians who still think that their publics expect them to think in a war way. They've, Obama still thinks he has to be talking about defeating America's enemies. Uh, our politicians still think that they have to justify the war in Afghanistan because it's making our streets safer, which it's not. Everybody knows it makes our streets less safe. And so I think it's that thinking. I think that contradiction is incredibly dangerous and the continued think war thinking is incredibly dangerous because all it does is exactly what Nia has described, which is to create chaos, violence, and for this type of sectarianism, violence, criminalization to spread. Um, so in a way, I think both these books are really important contributions to trying to change that thinking. Half an hour, so we want to take four questions at a time, a few rounds. Please, please, I mean, short and concise questions. No statements, because we don't have the time. Yes, sir. So we'll take four questions at a time, and then you'll answer. Yes. I wonder if Mia could extend his remarks a little to say a few words about what's going on the ground up in northern Iraq in the Kurdish areas and whether there is potential for extreme violence if the central government uh, attempts to reassert control in that area. Again, addressing Mir, if you could uh, uh, make some comments about whether Saudi Arabia will ever allow a Shiite regime in Iraq to stabilize itself. Thank you. 
fascinating presentation, I have to say, although uh, Nia's presentation struck a deeper chord with me. I'm a journalist as well, and I always put human beings at the center of my writings rather than concepts or theories on wars uh, parachuted from above. But after all, um, you know, wars are essentially human tragedies, and I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. I have a question to Nia. Um, some commentators argue that instead of adopting a security approach like the Bush administration did uh, by address, uh, addressing the war on terror, uh, he would have done a much better job tackling the root causes of Islamic uh, extremism, which often have to do with the sense of injustice combined with dire socio-economic uh, conditions in Muslim countries. Do you think it's a fair analysis? There's a question, gentlemen, behind you, please. There was titanic looting in Basra for a fortnight during the 2003 invasion, and shortly after that ended, there was a fortnight's titanic looting in Baghdad. No commentator has ever said this, but I think Anglo-American armies should have shot near to looters. Please say a question. No statement, please. No, no, please. Firstly, over, nobody's saying this. Firstly, over the head, then shooting one or two to wound, and then shooting one or two to kill. In other words, anti-war campaigners are entitled to, were entitled to say, should have said, be consistent, the invasion is illegal, but at the very least, America and Britain should have done the invasion properly and shoot thereat or at the odd looter enough to stop looting. Thank you. So we have four questions and then we'll take another round after you answer the questions here. Yeah. Yeah. would you like to start? Uh, what's happening in Kurdistan? Is there potential for violence? Oh, actually, actually, let me say, uh, just in response to Mary, I think that my reporting does take sides. Um, if, if you're reporting from the point of view of people, as victims of war, you're taking a side against the war. But more than that, um, I very much think that there are sides and that a journalist should take sides and that some wars, some, the violence can be legitimate. Certainly violence against uh, occupation and colonialism and imperialism can be legitimate. The thing that I hate most about Al-Qaeda is that it's delegitimized uh, resistance and it's delegitimized Muslims trying to resist imperialism and colonialism when it's perfectly legitimate to resist Israel, to fight Israel in its colonialism, let alone to fight American occupation or, or British occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda has... has sort of besmirched the, uh, the ability of Muslims to resist legitimately um, and use violence in, 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 in defense. Anyway, uh, Kurdistan. I think in 2008 there was an attempt by Maliki. He was flexing his muscles. He had basically wiped out the Sunni militias, awakening groups. Al-Qaeda was a spent force. He would wiped out the Mahdi army in Operation Charge of the Knights, albeit with the help of American special forces and helicopters and a lot of brutality. Um, and he was asserting his control um, and he flexed his muscles in areas which the Kurds considered their own in the north, so the disputed territories as they say and this led to clashes which could have escalated the, one of the few things I'll say the Americans did a decent job of within the context of the occupation was to promote confidence building measures between uh, Arabs and Kurds and, and prevent something which could have escalated there was always talk about potential for violence in the Kurdish Arab fault line they called it or powder keg, and that never happened. So I think journalists almost always hoping for violence, and we always talk
talking about a powder keg, and every a few times a year you'll have articles about the powder keg and is it going to explode. I think that a modus vivendi has been achieved. The Kurds, in effect, have their own state. In reality, it's more of a Turkish vassal because Turkey has incredible control over <coughs> events in Kurdistan. Uh, the Kurds are very much a player in the Baghdad government. They're not the kingmaker. There's always some new kingmaker coming along in the articles as well, in the cliche. Are the Kurds the kingmakers? Are the Sajjus the kingmakers? But uh, we now have a, a modus vivendi. I don't think there's any term we can apply to it. It's a state, but it's not a state. Um, it's very much it's independent, but it's also uh, subject uh, to, to uh, Turkish e economic domination. And it's very much a player in the Baghdad government as well. If you did have an attempt by Maliki to impose Baghdad's control over Kurdistan, you'd have a civil war, of course. Uh, um, initially, I think the Kurds would do quite well. The Iraqi army is very strong, terrible logistics. So uh, they would have a hard time without helicopters and without Saddam's weapons, defeating the Kurds up, up there. Uh, the Kurds were a bit shocked, I think, to realize in, in the 2009 elections that Kirkuk doesn't belong only to them. The elections proved that uh, Alawi is quite popular. I think even the more anti-Kurdish Arab politicians like Nujayfi, now the Speaker of Parliament, have attempted to create a rapprochement. Barzani and Maliki are getting along better. The chances for violence between Arabs and Kurds in Iraq, I think, are, are really very limited because it's not anybody's interest. If somebody could benefit from it, then I think uh, they would go that route. But nobody really wants it right now, so it's not going to happen. Will Saudi Arabia allow for uh, a Shia regime in Iraq to be stable? Uh, I do think that Saudi Arabia or some of its proxies are elements of the instability in Iraq. I mean, the Saudis, Saudi establishment despises Shias more than anything and, and fears them. as insane paranoia that Iran wants to con uh, occupy Mecca and Medina and um, Saudi officials actually believe that. Um, Saudis, of course, were huge sponsors of Ayat Alawi, um, as were the Turks and others. Um, I have no evidence, but when I wonder who could be behind some of the attacks in Iraq today that make no sense, and what's the point of blowing up Shias today? Uh, you're not undermining the government. There's no chance you've lost a civil war. You, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, what are you gaining from it? Um, who has an interest in destabilizing Iraq? Saudi Arabia is one potential candidate. Uh, a strong Iraq um, is uh, a concern for many countries in the region. Iraq has a history of being sort of greedy and aggressive in the past. It has potentially a very powerful military, very experienced special forces. It's going to be getting American fighter jets and tanks. Uh, Iran may have an interest in that kind of instability because a strong Iraq might begin to wonder why is Iran stealing so much water from me. Um, but so too the Saudis. The Saudis hate Maliki. Maliki hates the Saudis, um, in part for sectarian reasons. Um, this, I, Iraq, in some ways, is a democracy, <coughs> at least on paper, um, which also is, is a threat <coughs> to the regime in Saudi Arabia, a threat to the status quo in the region, much like Hezbollah is a threat to the status quo in the region, challenging um, to notions of uh, we need to collaborate with Israel because we have no other options. Um, <coughs> So, I, I, yeah, I think that we can probably tie the Saudis to some of the attacks occurring in Iraq. I, I, I don't think the Saudis will be happy with a strong, successful Iraq, um, but I have no ev evidence of that. Um, finally, oh, go ahead. Okay. Would you please? Do you yes, absolutely. Do you have? Do you have? Do you um, like yeah, I was just going to say um, something about uh, Bin Laden's relationship with globalization, which you mentioned, which I think is quite ambivalent. Um, you sort of had this crisis of authority in, the Isla in Islam, 
in the Islamic world, which was basically a product of three things, which was the, uh, the decline of the caliphate, uh, the, the co-optation and marginalization of the religious establishment, and also the fact that laymen have increasingly taken it upon themselves to interpret the Islamic sources. So bin Laden is, is a product of this, and he argues that the duty to defend Muslims has defaulted to him by a sequence of evasion from the clerics through the ruling regimes and, and Al-Qaeda is the vanguard that's protecting Muslims. But he then further democratizes Islamic authority by saying that anyone, by globalizing jihad and saying that anyone around the world can partake in this process. And this is the very thing that comes back to bite him, is that he then has conceded command and control and he's conceded um, the ability to um, basically own the violence that's, that's taking place. And as you saw from letters to Zarqawi in Iraq, bin Laden actually lost control over the, the um, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I think this has really come back to bite him. And it's, it's, it's why there have been so many Muslim civilian casualties. So I think I would say that his relationship with, with globalization is inherently ambivalent. It's what empowers him, but it's also what, what simultaneously uh, compromises him and yeah. will destroy him. Like respond? Yeah, I've got three things to say. One, of course, back to Nia. Uh, that I also think the use of force is sometimes justified, but not in the framework <laughs> of just war, but in the framework of human rights. In other words, it might be right to use force to stop massive violations of human rights, and that might include resistance or it might include international intervention. Uh, but how you use it, and the rules are much tighter if you do it within a framework of human rights rather than just war. Um, on concepts, I think the idea of putting the human being at the centre of your study of war is a concept, and I think we all start from concepts, and um, what people in academic world do is to sort of think about the concepts much more. But actually, everybody starts with some underlying assumptions based on concepts. And finally, on looting, I mean, I think, I mean, I remember talking before the 2003 invasion, I mean, I just knew this was going to happen, that, you know, Western military forces, whether it's in Bosnia or Kosovo or wherever, are just not prepared to do public security. And it, you know, that was one of the arguments about why it was going to lead to such incredible chaos. And they had no plans to do that, to protect people from looting and from other things. And worse, actually, I mean, there were some very brave Iraqi civil society people who were trying to do it themselves, and nobody was supporting them. But the only thing I would say is, there's a sort of argument in the United States that if only we'd known how to do public security, the invasion would have been a success. And I think the invasion was wrong, whether or not they knew how to do public security. It might have been, I don't know, you could say it was less bad, but it still was a terribly wrong thing to do. Yeah, if it had succeeded, they would have imposed some uh, child-be-like compliant dictator, and there would have been some similar oppression of the record. Yeah. One more round, please. We have 15 minutes of peace. Yes. <laughs> Uh, my question is to Alia. Um, I was wondering how you think Bin Laden and his cohorts would um, interpret what's going on in places like Tunisia and Egypt at the moment. Would he perhaps see that as, as a negative thing, or would he actually see it as some kind of uprising which he could capitalize on, perhaps? A question behind you, please, for the gentleman. 
Good evening. This is um, for all four of you, if you'd like to comment. As an Assyrian born in Baghdad, my question is, has the social vacuum left by America's war and the subsequent sectarian violence and civil warfare we observe marked the final nail in the coffin for the presence of the indigenous non-Muslim communities in Iraq, specifically the Assyrian community? And is their mass migration as a result testament to their belief that they have no future in Iraq? Thank you. Thank you. We have two questions here, please. My question really refers to Nia Rosen's point about social injustice and uh, obviously the, the huge gap now between the, the nouveau riche, the, the uh, establishment in inverted commas in Iraq and the people. Um, that uh, disparity and that widening gap which is seen throughout the Arab world and which we've seen in the last few days obviously in, in Tunisia, Algeria, uh, now Egypt. Um, to what extent uh, is the government uh, capable of, of narrowing, in, of Iraq, capable of narrowing that division? Obviously its, its first concern must primarily is security. Uh, that is, is, is what is bogging it down. It seems that it's, that it's ability to last and persevere must be limited uh, by its inability to tackle those social problems. Thanks. The one piece behind it. Thank you. Would anybody from the panel uh, factor in the economic aspect of the war? Uh, last week in New York Times, a U.S. Marine captain is quoting Sangin in Hilmand province in Afghanistan as the world's dangerous place. This is 10 years after the bottleneck was identified. So if we take per square kilometer per soldier cost of restoring security and establishing order, uh, can there be any figures which will say that it beats uh, all other previous combats? Is there any compar comparative analysis available? Thank you. Would you like to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you've had lots and lots of statements from um, Islamists and from radical Islamists on the events in, in Tunisia, and many of them, well, um, Abu Basir al-Tawis is one example, who actually said that it was the product of an Islamic intifada. So it's sort of being rewritten in this sort of vaguely absurd way, but there's definitely a general consensus that, that Tunisia and the alleged power vacuum creates an opportunity for Islamists, uh, for, for jihadists. But, absolute, but th th that's absolutely not true. And I think that the, um, this is borne out, especially by the fact that the Al-Nehta Party, which is a moderate Islamist opposition movement in Tunisia, whose leadership have been in exile in London, even they are going to have a lot of trouble making inroads in Tunisian society, it being secular and, and completely in inhospitable to these sorts of ideas. But I think that another important element is that where Islamists, even moderate Islamists, become or are seen to be involved in these processes as this unfolds throughout the region looking forward, that makes it, it actually changes the equation. And I think that you're going to see a much stronger response. I think that we'll see it in Egypt too. And the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood have been a little bit ambivalent because as soon as it takes on an Islamic, an Islamic character, I think that there's a much higher likelihood of demonstrations being crushed. And I think that there is definitely a dynamic relationship between the two, and that's just moderate Islamists. Whereas to answer your question, radical Islamists are seeing it as a, as a fantastic opportunity, but that's just a pipe dream, really. 
to steal that uh, question. I think that one of the exciting things about events in Tunisia and Egypt is that it's challenging the notion that the only way Muslims can rise up against the government is through Islamic, Islamist opposition parties, uh, because these are obviously secular leftist um, sort of uprisings. The Christians of Iraq are finished, um, unfortunately. It's one of the great crimes of the American occupation of Iraq. A week ago, I was looking into this in, in Iraq on behalf of an NGO. Um, at this point, even if it were safe for them to stay, so, they've, so many of them are gone, they have no community. Um, so churches are almost empty, social uh, associations are empty. So it, even if you're safe, what's the point of staying? You have no Christian community to interact with. Um, you've been so depleted. Um, but they also feel very unsafe. I was in Dora, Asturiyin, um, and other Christian, formerly Christian neighborhoods, neighborhoods associated with Christians, as well as Radir in, in, uh, in the New Baghdad area. Um, Christians are constantly being intimidated. At, they might feel safe during the day, but they know that at night someone can put a bomb in front of their house, um, which is happening very regularly. Um, and is it Al-Qaeda, or is it some criminal gang which just wants your house? Um, do the neighbors know who's doing it? Uh, Christians were among the first victims, in, in part because they were implicated totally unfairly with the American occupation, Amer sort of the American Christian crusade in Iraq. Much like uh, Arab Jews in the 1940s and 50s were blamed for, uh, sort of unfairly for Zionism and its occupation of, of Palestine, so too Christians in the Arab world, I think, are suffering as a result of the uh, uh, American invasions. And they, they are all leaving. Um, you don't find a single Christian in Iraq today, in Baghdad, certainly, or in Mosul, who wants to stay, or uh, most of their relatives are either in Australia or, or the U.S., uh, as you know, there are some Christian safe havens in northern Iraq, um, but tragically, I think the community is basically finished. Basra, um, a handful, but uh, it, it's just—it's uh, not worth it. When you, who are you going to marry? Um, where, where are your kids going to go to school? I mean, they're, they're just not enough. So it, it's almost like the critical mass <coughs> is gone. So even if it becomes safe, there's just no community for you to stay with, um, and it's totally unfair because. Christians in Iraq had nothing to do with the occupation, obviously, and were very much against it. Um, and these days, when you meet Christian Iraqis in exile, they talk in very romantic terms about the Saddam regime and how great things were for them then. And indeed, they, they're right about that. Um, can the government in Iraq narrow the social gap? Uh, were they, if they weren't so corrupt, yeah, I, I don't think that the security is enough of an excuse. And Iraqis know that. If you go to Sutter City and you listen to the Friday prayers for the last couple of years, um, Sudrist, clerics, and others will say, okay, you used to use security as an excuse for why we had no services, no electricity, no water, no sewage, etc. Now security is better, what's your excuse? Um, the totally incompetent bureaucracy. Um, a lot of the better minds fled. Um, if, you were some, if, you had, if you were the kind of guy that one would want working in ministries, maybe highly educated, non-sectarian, you probably fled Iraq. You're living in Damascus or Jordan. Or Australia or Denmark, who knows where. So there's a problem even of just people to run the, the, uh, the state properly. Corruption is everywhere, from the lowest clerk to the most senior official. Um, also a problem. Uh, they, they, they could. There's no, there's no security impediment to improving the sewage and electricity in Iraq today. There's a problem of corruption and, and sectarianism and, 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 and greed. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to be narrowed anytime soon. I think, it, in fact, what you'll see 
is the government failure to address these social grievances um, is going to re result in increasing authoritarianism because it won't be able to win people over. There'll be more demonstrations. We saw in the summer uh, that demonstrators and bus were being shot. That's going to lead to a tighter grip and punishment of, of, of demonstrators. I don't think you'll see in Iraq what you saw in Tunisia, in part because Iraq is so exhausted of revolution. Um, there was a gathering of Iraqi elites, uh, former current ministers um, in Baghdad a couple of weeks ago, right after the Tunisia events, and they were talking about whether events in Tunisia could happen here in Iraq. The consensus was they can't because we're too divided among Sunni, Shias, and Kurds. Not that they shouldn't, because not, not that we don't have those underlying injustices, but that they can't only because the Iraqis are so divided right now. Um, so the potential exists, but I, th I think that um, Iraq has been through so much, the state is, is, uh, is growing increasingly strong, you're not likely to see anything revolutionary happening in Iraq for a long time. A uh, war and economy. Yes, and I would like to say something about social justice too. Just a very brief point about Iraq, that it is an oil state, like Russia like Saudi Arabia and the problem with oil states is that they rely on oil revenues and not tax um, for their sources of income and so there's no obligation on them to provide services for their people <laughs> or very minimal so I think it's a huge problem trying to get social justice in oil states unless there's so much money that you just can't help it <laughs> Um, on the economy, um, it's absolutely, I mean, you, you cannot not relate the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to the financial crisis. I'm always amazed. I mean, the last big financial upheaval was during the Vietnam War. And clearly, uh, the United States spends $700 billion a year on defense spending, half the world. It's the same size as the Obama um, stimulus package um, and a further three trillion or so has been spent on the wars in Afghanistan over and above uh, spending so it's not difficult to figure out that military spending just economically contributed to the huge Im global imbalances which I also could argue only I don't have time to explain it all was a major cause of the financial crisis. So the wars are not unrelated um, to uh, economic crisis. But even more, I mean, masses of aid has gone to Iraq and to Afghanistan, and none of it has really reached ordinary people. I mean, that's the story that Nir is telling us. But um, one of the shocking features of the war in Afghanistan is that after all these billions of aid, the Human Development Index has actually deteriorated in Afghanistan. So, you know, the economic situation is really appalling, and the wars set up a kind of predatory, criminalized economy in which people have been making money out of violence, and it's extremely difficult to shift that kind of mentality in that. So the economic factors are hugely important. Yeah, would you, would you agree with this, that there's a criminalized economy in, in Oh, sure. Um, I mean, one big difference between Iraq and Afghanistan, in Iraq, people are fighting over a resource. Whoever controls the state controls oil, um, and there's a tremendous amount of wealth to be stolen right there. In Afghanistan, we are the resource. Um, 
we, the um, international community, especially the United States, people are fighting in a way where our money, our presence and our money is fueling this conflict, the perfect conflict of economy, and we're very corrosive just by being there. Everybody has an incentive, people in the government, even the Taliban, are benefiting from American money by having to, by charging contractors bribes to operate in Afghanistan. In Iraq, it was like Blackwater, American security companies protecting the convoys. In Afghanistan, it's Afghan warlords. So we're actually fueling the warlordism and the corruption. Um, and there's no indication that increased American money, international money, whatever, in Afghanistan leads to security. In fact, it looks like the more we spend in areas, uh, the, the more insecure they get. Um, one other thing about the financial crisis, though, it may be a limiting factor in American imperialism. Just in Iraq, we see that American ambitions uh, for staying there are limited. They were going to have a permanent, ba- an enduring base, as they called it, in Diyala province. They, they uh, canceled that idea a few months ago because it was too expensive to maintain that base. Um, so uh, if that, we're not going to, if American imperialism won't die, for moral reasons, perhaps at least be constrained by financial reasons. Yeah, I mean, this applies too to Osama bin Laden. His argument is not just anchored in a uh, the theological basis, but rather mm-hmm. the biggest theft in world history. Mm-hmm. This is the point has really he has hammered this particular point time and again. Do you agree? Do you see also uh, a, an economic angle in, in, in bin Laden's? Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Which is why he also fashions himself as a pioneer of Islamic social justice. And yeah, that's absolutely a huge part of it. And I think that that's necessarily part of it because he has to offer or purport to offer people something. And it would be to sort of reassert control over these. Yeah, absolutely. But the fact is, is that none of his actions are hastening that end. I mean, that none of them are actually geared toward that end, nor are they actually achieving them. So again, you know, I'd agree with Nir, and it reinforces my point, which is it's the pragmatics, it's the consequences, it's what's actually going on that end up informing whether we continue with certain policies or not, whether they're legitimate or not in the end. Well, thank you.